Cam Scott and Joel Barber. And our series of podcasts features interviews with a range of elite athletes, including Olympic gold medalists, international footballers and BBC Sports Personality of the Year winners. This is a podcast that aims to explore the areas of an athlete's life that aren't often talked about, such as dealing with rejection, recovering from injuries and handling the media. We also think there are so many lessons to learn from elite level sport, and by exploring the journeys of elite athletes, we are hoping to show how those learnings can be applied to our own journeys, whether that's in sport or in our everyday lives. And coming up on today's episode. Yeah, we like a close team, but that doesn't necessarily mean we're hanging out with one another and best man at one another's wedding. We just, we just, we solve, resolve our issues. We've got good problem resolutions. We don't hold grudges and, and get on with it. And everyone has a professional respect for one another and a clear sort of idea of what's expected of them. So, and if friendships flourish out that, then great. But they're the sort of principles of the team that were sort of non-negotiable. And then when the Australians came along, I got picked in that side and my brother got picked as well. So, um, that, yeah, they, I mean, they're special memories, mate. There's been a couple of big evolutionary stages for me. Um, one of the early doors, well, I say early, was probably like after about a year. I was like, why am I focusing on the two minutes that he died for or the tragedy? Why I, and we had 24 amazing years together. Um, why, why am I focusing on the fact we've lost him? Why can't I celebrate the fact that I was fortunate to do all those things that we've already discussed? So welcome to today's episode, where we are lucky to be speaking to former England cricket captain, Adam Hollyoke. He's a really great bloke and we're very grateful for him for opening up to us about some important topics such as building successful teams, dealing with grief, having gratitude and keeping perspective. And we think there's a lot to learn from Adam's journey. As a cricketer, he had a number of incredible achievements, including captaining Surrey to three championship victories and also leading the England side in one day internationals a team that also featured his brother, Ben Hollyoak. In 2002, however, Adam was given the devastating news that Ben had been killed in a car accident. And in this episode, Adam really opens up about the grieving process that he's still on and the perspective that losing his brother has given him. I was looking through Adam's Instagram before we recorded with him to try and get a feel for the different things that he likes to speak about. And I saw under one of his posts, he'd put, this year I'm making a concerted effort to live life greatly again. And I think as you'll see over the course of the next hour, that just sums him up perfectly. He embraces life, he embraces the challenges that are thrown his way, whether good or bad. And I think there's a lot that we can all learn from that for sure. He's an amazing guy, someone I feel really blessed to have met. And I hope it's an hour that you enjoy too. So thanks for coming on, Adam. You're someone we've wanted to record an episode with for a while. You've got an inspirational journey from captaining England to competing in boxing and MMA while dealing with a number of setbacks and adversity along the way. So we're really looking forward to delving into all of that today. Yeah, thanks for having me on, guys. Looking forward to it. So if we could start from the beginning, um, actually cricket wasn't really your first love. You played a lot of rugby uh, as your main sport and Aussie rules football, among others. Cricket was actually some way down the pecking order. So how did you get into cricket and when did you start start taking it seriously? Well, I don't know if it was down the pecking order, but it was 
just I guess it was just one of the sports that I did. Uh, I, I don't know. I, I, I kind of feel like I sound arrogant when I go, oh, I did all these other sports. But I was just like a normal kid. I just did everything. I played rugby, played hockey, played cricket, um, did a bit of boxing, did a bit of just anything AFL when I was out here in Australia. So um, we made a few games up of ourselves. You know, in, in the garage with tennis ball and just would like tong cricket, you know, flip flop cricket. I think we invented that, but it was like, oh, we just did everything. We were just normal, active kids. There was no PlayStations or anything around then. And so we had to try and entertain ourselves. So that's just how it went down. Mm. I guess with that as well, like playing so many sports, it's, you're not falling in love with just the sport itself, but like actually just competing. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, that's, that's spot on actually and that's just a problem till this day um it's like something that i'm basically addicted to i think so uh even today i've just been down taking my kids on at basketball um i think there are worse addictions to be honest (laughs) well there's worse addictions but it's not great when you're taking heaps of glory out of beating your nine-year-old son in a (laughs) game of basketball to the point where he's like, Dad, you're like a really bad winner. <laughs> and I'm saying to him, it's better than being a bad loser. So, <laughs> so it's, um, yeah, I've got to get that sorted. I'm almost 50, mate. I've got to get that under control. And uh, I've heard you, obviously, you, you played a lot of sports to, to a good level, but you said before that you're actually, uh, you'd admit that you maybe weren't the most talented cricketer to start with, but you had a, a, a number of other attributes, not just your physical attributes, but mentally you were very strong. Um, mm. what, why do you think you were so mentally tough? Um, I, I mean, hey, I don't think anyone's tougher than anyone else. I think we're just all um, basically our, our, our the society, the environment we're in molds us and I just grew up and my dad was very competitive and he used to sledge me a lot and um in a nice way not I mean nothing abusive or anything like that but um it was just that banter is very much a part of our of our house and it's very much about you know sportsmanship and trying to put one another off and in the attempt and we're all competitive so um I think I just grew up in in that environment so then when those situations arose I was comfortable. Um, I don't necessarily think there's something different in my DNA to anyone else's. I just think it's just the environment. If you put another kid in that environment, then and it's the same environment that I'm trying to recreate for my kids. I mean, I'm trying to obviously be a good parent, but you, you fall down along the way. But um, I'm trying to recreate that environment where I don't let my kids win at anything. So I... Um, and the same thing with my dad. My, and, and we only can only go on the experiences that we've had. There's other parents out there who are like, oh, that's terrible. You're damaging them for life. I'm like, well, maybe, but that's how I brought up and it worked okay for me and my brother. So you can only go on the experiences that you've seen, can't you? So um, I think that's probably part of the reason why I was able to mentally cope with the pressures of a cricket or any sport that I chose to do at the higher level. Uh, like I said, I just want to sort of, don't want to sound arrogant and say, oh, I was just built different. I'm, I'm, I'm not. I just think I'm just a product of my environment. Well, it's like Kevin Peterson, isn't it? He got asked 
how he's able to be so mentally strong when he's playing test matches and like um, the highest level. And it's just basically, he said that the games of cricket he played in the backyard, like with his dad and his brothers were the most intense thing he's played. So that sort of set him up anyway. Sure, it's just like that. 100%. And then, um, and if you talk about our Surrey side, you know, from mid 90s to um, early 2000s, um, everyone was like, wow, that was such a dominant side. Well, I honestly believe the banter and sledging that we had in our changing room was a thousand times. It was almost a respite from it when you went out to go and, and play the opposition. It was like it was these guys were trying to – and the good thing about it is you've already heard it because your own teammates have said those sledges about you before and then you go out there and when they say it, you've heard, you're hearing it for the tenth time rather than, oh, that's caught me off guard. So I think it just, it's just like anything. You just become desensitised to it and if you're in an environment where you're brought up and it's brought up, the environment's hard. I mean, I'm not saying you want anyone brought up in an abusive environment, but um, it's just a hard, environments can be too soft. And I've found my time, at times, I've caught myself being too soft on my kids and, and you know, like trying to go down to school and sort their problems out for them. I sort them out yourself. Sort them out yourself, mate. Uh, you know, that, and that, that's being kind because, People think, oh, that's cruel, that's mean. I'm like, no, it's not because you basically you're helping them develop skills to cope with the situations that are undoubtedly going to come up in their life. So, um, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting the, the different ways that people look at it. Yeah, and talking of that Surrey side as well, you must feel quite privileged to have been able to be a part of that side, not only because it was so successful and you were captain, but also you were all such good mates, weren't you? And like you said, there was such good like chat flying about and everyone was so close. Yeah, I mean, it's amazing, actually. It's only, I'm not sure if you guys saw, but Joe Benjamin, one of our, was probably one of the first guys to die of natural causes. I'm not about, obviously, we've lost a few tragically, but um, he was one of the first guys to die of, like, a health reason the other day, and it sort of sent a shock through us all, and we've all reconnected, and we've got a WhatsApp group, and we're all talking, and and it's actually, you realise how good, a bunch of blokes they are and I've said this on the thing you realise how good a bunch of blokes they are when you have to deal with these other idiots that are out here in the worst of the world so that's um, they're, they're a really special group of individuals um, and I was definitely fortunate to be born at a time that would enable me to go through it with with them I, th- I think that's really what can make a good team into a great team you can get a lot of good players and if they are good blokes as well and they all get on together and there's togetherness within the squad that can really uh, translate into a great team and obviously that, that Surrey team was a great team you won the championship title 1999, 2000, 2002 all under your leadership and you won several other trophies as well what what was it like being captain and what sort of values were, tr- were you trying to instil into the team? That's interesting because um, we, uh, we were a very good bunch of friends but we also we, there was a lot of tough conversations had in that change room. There was a lot of, like, calling people out, which isn't necessarily something that people associate with good teams. You know, think, oh, everything, oh, we go, he's, the, you know, like the number three batsman is the godfather of the number four batsman and the wicket keepers um, babysits for the opening bowler when he goes out and, like, um, he was best man at his wedding. And it wasn't like that, do you know what I mean? Um there were guys who definitely got on well, but we had a lot of arguments as well, a lot. I mean, we had bust-ups, we had 
I think the, and the, the best thing about the team was they always it got put behind us and moved on and no one dealt, um, dwelled on it and the professional respect for one another was always there. So if someone had a personal gripe with another person, they just sorted it out. And it was just like, and they might be yelling at each other. There might be two or three of those a day. Um, and I tell people that and they're like shocked because they think, you know, they might, I, I've been in team since, I've coached team since and I look around and I'm like, they don't, they don't argue. Like, and just because I think sometimes when people see people argue that they think that that, there's disharmony in the team, but I think there's my parents would be the best example. They've been married for 50 years, and I don't think they've speak to each other like they tell each other to shut up like three or four times a day. But then straight after it, they get they get on with it, and they and, and they live in one of the most amazing relationships I've ever been ever seen. So um, it's an interesting one. Like I, I don't think we were naturally classically that. That team where oh, everyone drinks together and we all everyone had their own thing. Like, and interestingly, I spoke to um, Peter Loder, who was a member of Stuart Surridge's side in the fifty when they won seven championships in a row. And um, I was dying to speak to him, so I asked him about it. He goes, "No, nah, we all hated each other." I was like, "What are you kidding?" He said, "No, nah. I said we just all hated it. We all had professional respect for one another." Though. And then. I mean, that, that made me realise that team teamwork can come in many different forms. Um, but I think we are fortunate that we, we did have a lot of very close friends with inside. Yeah, there's probably like a common misconception about teams when people say, oh, they were a very close side. It doesn't exactly have to mean they were the best of power. It just means they were the best operating side together. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's, that's I think that's it in a nutshell, mate. It's like... Yeah, we like a close team, but that doesn't necessarily mean that we're hanging out with one another and best man yeah. at one another's wedding. We just, we just, we solve, resolve our issues. We've got good problem resolutions. We don't hold grudges and, and get on with it. And everyone has a professional respect for one another and a clear sort of idea of what's expected of them. So, and if friendships flourish out, that, then great. But they're the sort of principles of the team that were sort of non negotiable. And it all worked well because you were so successful on the pitch and it ended up with you getting a call up to the England side. What was it like playing for England and also representing your country alongside your brother who you'd obviously grown up playing cricket in the garden with, as we've mentioned, and now he's suddenly walking out the long room at Lords. It must have been incredible. Yeah, um, it was a bit surreal, really. Um, I felt like I could have been selected a little bit before I did. So I think I was, in my mind, I was thinking, oh, I might never get selected here. And then when it eventually did, it came out of the blue um, and I played against Pakistan. Um, then that was in the days when there, was no, there wasn't two separate teams. So they just took the test side away for the winter and then the, um, the, um, the test side played the one day as at the end of the series. They didn't fly a new team out. It was just, that was the way it was. So... I didn't get picked in that winter tour. So I thought, oh, you know, that, that might be the end. And then when the Australians came along, I got picked in that side and my brother got picked as well. So, um, that, yeah, I mean, they're special memories, mate. They're, I don't think you appreciate it at the time because you're young and you're caught up in it. And um, I mean, I'm not saying we didn't enjoy it, but now when I look back, I think I saw something the other day where 
Sam Curran and Tom Curran, if they were to play in their test match together, they were going to be the first brothers this century to do it. And then we were the only ones in the last century to make our debut together. It was like, I was like, holy shit, that's a... That's an amazing stat, but like I said at the time, it was kind of lost on us. We were just two kids just doing our thing and having a bit of success and just, it just we sort of, I guess we didn't really appreciate it for what it does. I certainly do now. I've heard you say as well that there was like potentially a few worries about your bowling on the international level and people have been saying about how much of a jump up it is and then you've got a couple forfers against Pakistan, you're feeling really good about it and then you later found out those games were fixed. <laughs> yeah, that's it. yeah. I, I, I like to think it was just the just the bowlers that didn't do bowl. <laughs> it was the, 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 um, yeah, that's right. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm not, bloody, you know, I'm not Jimmy Anderson, am I? So um, I'm or Stuart Broad. I was I was a guy who could bowl some tidy overs in one day cricket, and I, I could take wickets. That's one thing I could do. I had a good change of pace and. Um, but put it this way, when they were um, opposition teams were going through the list of bowlers they had to face the next night, I don't think there'd be too many bats when they're having sleepless nights about facing me. So, um, yeah, getting those couple of fourfers mm. in that first game. I think my they were four for 20 in my first game, and, and that I think I don't think I ever bet, beat that, so... Yeah, I, I think you're being a, a tad modest there. You did have a lot of success in, in the England side. You won man of the series as you played an integral role in beating Australia 3-0, which is obviously incredible and it's your country of your birth as well. What was it like playing against Australia, a country where you spent so much of your life and did you receive some stick from them as well, from the fans and the media and even some of the op- opposition players? Yeah, plenty of stick. Um, I would have been disappointed if I didn't. Uh, I think I think some of my favourite nicknames were Judas, Turncoat, Traitor. That's just a few of them. For I can't remember. There was, there was plenty though. And um, ironically, I think if you look at my my career record in international cricket, it's like it's far superior against Australia, who were a better side than the other sides I played against. But it seemed to I don't know if it's the familiarity of being Australian myself and. And that banter that goes on out in the field, um, I'd like to say that that's the case, but I don't think it's that. I think it's just, again, like I said, it's that familiarity of the words flying around and, and I've been brought up, I was brought up there as well. So um, I think maybe it's just a bit of familiarity made me feel more at home. You, know, you play against Pakistan or India or the West Indies, they, they don't say anything because that's not part of their game. I think I just found it a bit odd when I was out there and no one was saying anything to me. Just um, Did it bother you when you were being called those names or could you brush it off? No, it didn't bother me. It's, like I said, I got grown up, I grew up getting called worse names by my own parents than, than anything I received on the cricket field. And my brother and I were just constantly at one another. Um, I have a very weird sense of humour in the if I like someone, I constantly abuse them um if i don't like someone i just i just don't pay them any attention so it's um i know that's not unfamiliar but um that's that oh, that's i guess it's just giving an insight into the way i was brought up and i always say to people like don't if i'm abusing you or sledging you or having bad don't take it as a that means i like you 
So if I stop talking to you, then start worrying, then then you can come and ask me what's wrong. But um, yeah, it's just the way we're brought up. That Australian team in in the nineties, I think they termed it like mental disintegration, didn't they? Is that something that you see quite frequently now when you're coaching teams like Queensland? I don't see it at all. I don't, I don't see it at all. I, don't, I really don't. I'm like actually um, when I came out here to coach Queensland. Um, I was expecting to, you know, see some re- really hardcore like gamesmanship and mental disintegration, and it just doesn't exist now. And I, I'm not saying I'm not um, saying that's a good thing or a bad thing. I'm not commenting on that. I'm just commenting on the fact that it doesn't happen. Yeah. Um, we had a game end of last season where um, one of the, I think it was. Um, Pattinson called one of our players a name, which I probably call my own kids that name every day. And he, he, he got banned for a game and a test match. So it's like they don't, they don't get away with it. That was that was a shield cricket. He that and he got banned from it. Just so happened that his ban ran over into a test match. So mm. um, it's just it's just not in the game anymore. And I, I don't I don't necessarily. I don't have an opinion on it. I think I might struggle, but it might, might, it would probably affect my game, but the majority of people will probably enjoy it, I'd say, and just let them go out and play cricket. I'm not sure how that gamesmanship came, became a part of cricket, but I didn't know it any other way. So um, to be, for, if I was to play now and it not be around, I think it would be harder for me. I think so. Um, because uh, I used it, I mean, not proud of it, but I um, I wasn't shy of a few words myself, so um, I'm not paying myself out to be Mother Teresa here. <laughs> but uh, but um, I um, I was certainly keen on having a chat with the opposition and trying to impose my will and personality upon the game. So um, yeah. I feel it might be. I'm sure again, you adapt, don't you? But um, I think you know there's so many discrimination, so much discrimination in around now in so many different areas that you've just got to be careful. And I think people, the, the, probably the hierarchy have just got sick and tired of just got to put a line through it, just stop it happening. Probably yeah. easier. I think there was probably a mixture of things as well. I think not only now is everything filmed, and there's so many more match referees. But yeah. Australian team in the '90s was so good that so many people talked about them, and then it sort of was blown up to be a bigger thing than it actually was. Yeah. Yeah, it, it wasn't that bad. I mean, I think they were just good at it. They, I mean, people used to say, oh, Warney, and um, he says this and he says that, and I'm like, he's quite a good bowler as well. <laughs> you know what I mean? Even, even, if he wasn't, even if he wasn't saying it, I don't think it, uh, you know, he's still an amazing, you've got to deal with that. So it sometimes overshadows the, the talent that that side had um, because – you know, you hear people, it's like people make out that they only ever won a game because they were out there sledging. It's like, they're pretty good cricketers too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I get you. Uh, it seemed like you thrived in those difficult situations when you were facing the likes of Warney and, and the Australian team. Um, you liked being in those difficult situations. And yeah, sticking with your England career, you were captain for 14 of your 35 one-day internationals. So you were clearly trusted as a captain both by the coaches of England and also Surrey, as we've, we've mentioned. What do you think 
makes a good captain and, and why do you think you personally were given that responsibility so much hey i've got no idea why i was given <laughs> that responsibility because i um when i grew up i was not captaincy well i don't know if i was captaincy material because i never got given it um, i was always the sort of rebellious um i wouldn't say i was naughty but i was just always that edgy kind of guy who um, never got asked to be captain or anything. I think because I wasn't necessarily like a yes man to the um, the establishments that I was in. Um, I think people always saw me as a bit opinionated, and so therefore I never I never got that role. And I remember when Graham Clinton came to me, and I think the first time I captain would have been ninety four, ninety five, ninety five, and he came to me and he said, "We want you to be captain." I genuinely turned around and thought someone was standing behind me, so. Um, I'd never captained anything. Um, and I was like, really? And um, I think I've had more fights, street fights, and more bloody one-night flings than I had did um, captain games of cricket at that stage. So I was, um, yeah, I just wasn't that. I mean, the, the typical captain is, you know, you're clean cut. You know, you Joe Root type of guy. You know, you're Alistair Cook kind of. They're, they're, they're yeah. Not, not some guy who's, you know, um, a bit, bit straight, a bit straight and a bit, you know, like fights. You know, there's boxing and, and you know, um, ends up cage fighting. Like, so I'm not, um, I'm not your typical captain. Um, what made me a good captain or successful captain, rather? Um, number one, I always say the number one thing was I was always surrounded by good players. I mean, you can't take a bunch of terrible cricketers and you can't just, I couldn't just go down to the Peckham, Urinal, second 11 and take their time, team and captain against Australia to victory. That's not how it works. So I always, I was fortunate. I mean, I had Surrey to captain. That's, they're a great side. So um, um, I had good tools to work with. And I think also because I started so young, and I had amazing players on my side. Like I started when I was captain, I think my first captaincy was like 23, 24, something like that. I was captain of England by the time I was 26, um, 25, 20, something like that. And I, I had Alex Stewart on my side. This guy's 100 test matches for England. How am I going to tell him how the game works? You know, I, mean, I never played anything. So I had to be humble um, when I first captained. I had to ask for help. I had to, um, I Graham Thorpe, I mean, we had always had international players there. So if I'd gone in as a captain and said, right, okay, I'm captain, everyone listen to me because I'm the captain and I know best, I would have, I would have lost the team. Mm -hmm. So I think my style of captaincy, albeit from the outside because of my abrasive nature, people thought, oh, he must be in there giving some Churchillian type speech during the tea break. It wasn't like that. Um, I think I was more, we ran it more like a democracy. I asked people their opinion. I always valued people's opinion. Um, I didn't, I never put myself ahead of the team. So I, you know, I used to field in close, silly point and short leg. And I mean, usually historically people put the youngest guy in there just because no one else wants to do it. So I'd go in and do those jobs myself. Um, I think so therefore I kind of, I just had the respect of my team because of that, I think. So, um, and, then it, and then it becomes easier to ask people to do things. If you're 
prepared to do things that other people don't want to do, then all of a sudden people are like, and, I, and number one thing, I don't think I valued the captaincy. I think Pete, that came across. So I never tried to just stay captain. I, um, I was like, if you don't want me captain, then I won't captain. I'll do my best job I can while I am. But so I think people were just like, okay, let's just give this guy a hand and he's just trying to do his best. And, and it kind of just worked. It kind of just worked. It just, I, I was, I, I think I'd like to think that I treated people with respect and spoke to people well. As in, I didn't, I never really lost my cool people. I always, I considered the guys I played with my friends and hopefully they felt that. And, and I think they repaid me in kind by, by trying and, and basically accepting the things I asked them to do. Yeah, I guess if you, you, you maybe on the face of it weren't the most conventional captain, you're not like Joe Root, for example, but from what I've read, people wanted to play for you they respected you as a captain and you managed to get the best out of them um what, what one of the players who you managed to get the best out of as well was, was your brother who you, you captained as um at, as an england captain um and unfortunately um you did have a life-changing experience with ben um in 2002 when devastatingly he, he lost his life in a car accident can you give us an insight into how someone goes about piecing their life back together when they have such a horrendous experience like that? Um, yeah, I can. I'm still doing it. It's, it's one of those things which is just not when you have a life-changing experience like that. And the first thing I'd like to say is I, I don't, I don't um, think I'm unique here. We all go through trials and tribulations. We all lose people. We all go through our own dramas, divorce, lose money. Um, have our hearts broken and it's just life. Life just humbles you along the way. Um, and I'm constantly evolving with it. Like obviously when it first happened, it's it's just tragedy. It's just um it's just gut wrenching. It's um you, you just you wake up every morning and the first, as soon as your eyes the first thing you think of when you wake up, last thing you think of before you go to sleep. When you wake up, you're like, tell me it's not true. And then there's that realisation it is. Um, and it's just literally, uh, you know, I've heard read stories about people after they have spinal injuries having to learn to walk again. Um, I think it's like after a tragedy like that, I think it's just literally trying to treat your brain to remember how to be happy again. Um, so. Um, yeah, that's, it's just as simple as that. It's survival at the beginning because um, you're so, your mind's in a spin and you just go through it. And then you evolve and you, um, you, hate, you meet people who give you advice, you read things, you, you evolve. Uh, I mean, one, there's been a couple of big evolutionary stages for me. Um, one of the early doors, well, I want to say early, was probably like after about a year. I was like, why am I focusing? And I stumbled across this myself. Why am I focusing on the two minutes that he died for or the tragedy? Why, and we had 24 amazing years together. Um, why, why am I focusing on the fact we've lost him? Why can't I celebrate the fact that I was fortunate to do all those things that we've already discussed? Um, some people, they hate their brother. Some people, they don't have that relationship. Some people, 
never get to have those special times together. I was I was fortunate. I got those, um, and I just started being grateful for that and um, and acknowledging that I was blessed rather than feeling like I was cursed for for losing him. So that was that was a big a big moment. Um, and then as life's gone on, um, even like Joey the other day. I mean, now I've started, we've started losing friends from old age, from like, you know, heart attacks and stuff like that. It's like, you know, isn't the cycle of life a beautiful thing? It's like, it's, you know, it's a gift while it's here and then it's taken and it's a tragedy and we're all going to die. Um, and then we're, um, we've all got a number. So, you know, my brother's was 24. Graham Kersey's was 25. Um, Joey Benjamin was 60. Uh, it doesn't matter. The number doesn't matter when you die. It's, it's like making the most of the moments you've got. And the memories I have with my brother and Graham Kersey and Joey are beautiful memories. So that's kind of not only has that helped me deal with their tragedy, but it's helped me kind of appreciate my own life going forward and, and how I want to be with, in my relationship with the people that I care about. Yeah, and I, I, that is quite powerful. And it's, like you said, it's something that's apl- applicable to so many different areas of life. And I've even seen on your Instagram and the, and the quotes you put out and sort of a little bit of a journey even you've been on on your Instagram saying about sort of the transfer of energies and more recently you're writing about how life is a bit of a game and you sort of owe it to the people who have passed early to continue enjoying the game and making yeah. them to that game. And I think that's quite inspiring. Yeah. Yeah, um, I, I mean, I'm not my writing's not amazing. I'm trying to get better at it, but um, but I don't think that life's a game. I said, I said, if you view it as a game, then um, what I'm saying is, when you die, you're dead. There's nothing you can do. As brutal as that sounds, and as horrible as that sounds, that's that's the fact. You're, you know, you're not able to to do anything. But with people who are still alive, they're still. We've got a chance of still doing stuff we can't just die with them so we've got we're still in the game we're still we've got an opportunity to do something and I guess the the analogy that I used was you know in cricket as if you if you're a number six batsman and you know you lose four quick wickets and then all of a sudden you start just give up well we've lost four wickets and you just go into sympathy for those guys then you're not giving yourself the best chance at it and it's the same with life if I just shut up shop just because my brother died um, you know you've got to keep going until the job's done so you know I've got things I want to achieve and, and I'm, I'm not trust me I'm not preaching here because I've been guilty of this this is um, nearly 20 coming up for 20 years of evolution of me having dealing with the problem and still trying to work it out myself so I please don't think I'm um, you know, I'm sure it'll change again. I'm not trying to con- be condescending towards other people, but this is just where I'm at at the moment. So, um, and, and I'm sure it'll evolve again. And uh, there's a constantly evolving thing. Uh, I guess there are many phases of grief, and it does just evolve, like you yeah. said. Um, but yeah, we're we're a podcast that tries to touch on important topics like grief, and so we're really appreciative of you being open and talking about uh, how you've managed to deal with your grief. And and yeah, we're so grateful that that you can speak about it so openly. It's it's quite inspirational. Um, and you you 
one way that it did actually impact you uh, sort of immediately after um, is when you got back to cricket, you you almost, you lost your fear of, of, of everything really. And it's, it put everything into perspective and it actually ultimately meant that you played a lot of your, your best cricket in the, the years. Yeah. It's ridiculous. It's crazy, isn't it? It's, um, I mean, I've, my greatest season ever was after my brother died. Um, and then the next season, it was just like, I mean, I'm now studying sports psychology and I guess I've got an insight into that now. But um, I always, and I talk to uh, a lot of the players about the desensitising of yourself. Um, so, you know, if you want to get good at facing fast bowling, face it in training a lot to become not scared of it and your reactions can, can deal with it. Eventually, you know, you're going in to face someone who can bowl 90 miles an hour and your heart rate doesn't even get up you just because you know you can do it and you desensitize to it. Um, it's the same in life. It's, um, you know, that, that can happen. Like um, I would say, like, imagine if you worked in a morgue and the first day you went in uh, and you went there, you'd be like, oh, my God, there's dead people everywhere. This is, like, horrific. This is – I can guarantee after a week or two, people will be asking, do you want lunch? And you're like, oh, yeah, I'll, I'll just eat it in here. Like, you become desensitised to any environment you're in. So, um, yeah, that's that's definitely – the longer you live with things and the more you have to deal with them, then I think it's just natural that you're going to be able to cope with them better. And that was – you then retired shortly and then – that idea of desensitizing yourself to stuff is that something that you then carried through to um mma it's obviously you boxed before but it's quite an intimidating environment to go in and then mm. i guess it's that same thing of desensitizing yourself over time and becoming way more comfortable with it yeah i think so um i remember like my my trainer used to freak out because i'd be sitting there like 15 minutes before i was meant to fight and i'd be joking and laughing and um literally just chatting with people like we're chatting now and um and he'd be like you gotta switch on you know you start like if you want me to like start you know growling and carrying I'm like mate I'll, I'll i'll switch on when when they play my song and i'm walking out there I'll, I'll switch on then but i think i had to psych myself up as opposed to a lot of people have to like they're so aroused and they're so edgy they've got to try and calm themselves down I think just because of everything I've been through in life, um, I had to actually do the opposite because um, obviously I've been fortunate to play games in front of 100,000 people. I played for England. And um, and then obviously the big the other big things like losing my brother, losing Graham Kersey, um, I've lost other friends as well along the way. Uh, all, I lost my money, um, divorced, all of these things. They you become desensitized to hardship and um i when i did go to fight i just i just turned up to fight so um i wasn't thinking about the consequences like what are you going to do you know knock me out like it's okay like they, you've taken my brother off me you've taken my money you've taken my wife you've taken my friends like what are you going to do how are you going to hurt me it's like it's, it's impossible so, and even now I walk around with confidence. Like the only thing that I really genuinely, um, I've tried to think like, how are you going to do it? The only thing is my kids. And I just, I mean, I love them dearly. And it's the only thing that I think that 
that's the, the, the last remaining bastion that I'm not desensitised about. Mm. Um, you know, so, I mean, imagine when you're, you know, two years old. My nine-year-old today had the biggest, he literally broke down, like, wanted to fight me because um, I beat him in a game of basketball, just had the biggest soul and carried on. It's like one, probably one of the worst things that's ever happened to him in his life. He hasn't had to deal with anything. I take his favourite toy off him or his iPad or whatever, then he's like, mounts down. It's because that's the worst thing that's ever happened. That's okay. That's just the worst thing that's ever happened. As we go through life, we just get hardened by the experiences that we have. Like by the time when I lost, when we lost Graham Kersey, then the worst thing that ever happened to me before that was I scored a duck in a game of cricket or mm. got a parking ticket. You know, my life had been so cruisy. So um, I think then as you have all these hardships that you go through and you, every time you get through them, you're just building more and more resilience. That's, that's exactly yeah. it. With each setback you have, you just grow more and more resilient, don't you? It's that removal of like the fear of failure as well, which can be so powerful, I think. Mm, it is. And like when I, I went and saw a psychologist, um, I remember why I've seen a psychologist. Anyway, we're talking about why I'd had a successful season. And when I told them, you know, my brother died and blah, 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 and they went, and the psychologist remember being, oh, yeah, that, that's pretty common. So I was like, okay, how so? And um, they said because it puts in perspective, you know, it's just a game and you go out and just play the game. You don't go out there with all the fears. It's, it, it, your perspective of the worst things that can happen get it put into place and and you go out there and you um, – I didn't, like, I went out there and I used to say to, like, the opposition when I was walking out there, nothing more than playing against – nothing worse than playing against the man with nothing to lose. And uh, if I forgot the first ball and it was half volley outside of some, I was trying to whack it for six straight back over the head. They were like, this guy's crazy. Bowlers are running up, like nervous, thinking he doesn't care if he gets out. He's going to try and hit me into the car park. So all of a sudden the pressure's on them. And I was playing freely. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's an interesting, it's an interesting um, dynamic. Yeah, it's a, re- it's a really interesting point, Adam, and it's it's something that we actually spoke to Ed Jackson, the, the former rugby player, about a couple of weeks ago because he was a rugby player who got paralysed and, and that then became the worst thing that had ever happened to him. So now he doesn't really get nervous when he does things uh, these days because he just keeps thinking, what what's the worst thing that, that could actually happen? And I think that's something that's really important for athletes to remember because sport is obviously great but there are just so many more important things in life it's like it's a beautiful topic it's like that there um puts it all in perspective doesn't it i've been paralyzed and and here i am i feel guilty that i i i, I have like i allow myself to get into a bad place mentally when things aren't going right at work. This is like, this is 20 years after my brother died. So these things, these um, lazy mental traits sneak back into our, into our life. Um, I think straight after my brother's accident, I wouldn't, uh, I didn't want to drive a car because I was adamant that I was going to crash it or, and then here I am the other day, I caught myself driving, like changing the, playing around with my music and I'm like, what am I doing? Like, this is, you know, we can fall back into old traits very quickly. And I've, I've, I've noticed now that I've become more comfortable with my brother's death, that 
I'm allowing myself to take things for granted again a little bit more. So hearing something like what you're saying there about that guy who, you know, been paralyzed, it puts it into perspective. And for me, gratitude is like a big, not a thing to most people, but it's something which I've been genuinely pretty poor at in my life. It's just being grateful. I think probably because I've been blessed most of my life to be lucky and and I think the people who are the most blessed are often the ones who struggle with the gratitude. Um, I saw the other day, I don't know if you guys saw over there in England, probably wasn't big news, but there's a an Australian wheelchair tennis player. He um, he won the, the Golden Slam. He won all the majors, a Grand Slam, and then the Olympic gold. And he got on and he spoke and um, he said... Oh, you know, I just feel guilty about being able to be over here and be in Tokyo and live my dreams. No one in Australia has um, sent me anything negative uh, about being over here because everyone in Australia is locked down. So I was like, this guy's perspective, like, wow, what a what a beautiful like man to be able to. He's in a wheelchair. He's paralysed, and his perspective is to still. Be grateful that he's able to go and play tennis. He'll be, he's, you know, he's in the wheelchair. And I was like, you know, I need to get more of that about my life. And um, and I think it's it's the key to life because gratitude and, and then letting go of guilt. Uh, for a long time, I let I had a lot of guilt about my brother dying and not wanting to be and not allowing myself to be happy. But you know, these days I'm just trying to be grateful for. And someone asked me the other day, what are you grateful for? And I was like, I couldn't actually think of anything at first. And then I started thinking about it. I'm like, well, I'm grateful that I've got the use of my body and I breathe without help from machine or that I'm walking around. And there's some people out there who just haven't got access to food and water. So, it's, um, you know, just hearing what you said there just gives you great perspective. It's hard do when things are going hard for you but there's always someone who's going way worse so i think when times are hard that's the time to really reap the gratefulness mm. it can always be worse yeah absolutely it's weird isn't it because people often have to have that sort of bad thing happen to them to then actually take that step back and realize that but we'd all be in a much yeah. better place if we were able to do that in the first place anyway it's just quite odd isn't it yeah and and a lot of the players i've started saying I've been saying it for about five years now. Be humble, or life will cast humbleness upon you. And it's um, and I don't I don't mean that as some sort of weird um karma or anything like that. I think it's what it is 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 be grateful because when you're grateful, good things happen. When you're not grateful and you're arrogant and you just accept things, then I think life can kick you in the ass. And something that isn't actually a big deal can feel like a big deal when you haven't got perspective so you know karma perspective humbleness is kind of all intertwined i think so mm, yeah uh, I, I think uh, i think having perspective is obviously really important and and probably a, a, another uh, incident that that gives you perspective is what's happening in afghanistan you obviously spent time in afghanistan coaching um can you tell us a little bit a, a, about your time there and um a, and how it makes you feel it's really sad to see that because I met some like beautiful people over there. Uh, it, it was a long two weeks. Um, 
the, you know, obviously a bomb there was a suicide attempt, a bomber attempt on us. So it felt like a long two weeks. It was the most uh, bizarre and contrasting trips that I've ever been on because on one hand we had these people who just loved cricket and it was their opportunity to have international players in their country and showcase they love cricket. And on the other hand, we had these other people who tried to kill us, which is pretty nasty. So um, it's, yeah, it was, uh, it was a, a weird trip. I said, I've contacted a lot of those people and asked them how they're going. And and they said it's, it's not so bad as what it appears on um, on TV. But those people are also like, very positive people. So I don't know if they're trying to not maybe worry about them or, or what have you. But um, really, um, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, I think it's a beautiful place in a lot of ways, but it's got some issues and there's some people there who, um, I don't know, maybe confused. I don't know. I don't know um, enough about what motivates these people to do these things. But um, usually people are compelled to do things like when they're desperate or when their views are very strong. So, um, you know, I'm not going to pass judgment on, on those people. I just, I, I just hope to get it sorted out because I just I think anytime there's bloodshed um, based on people's differing ideologies, it's, um, it's, it's, a, it's a disappointing concern. Like those images coming out of it, trying to get out of it, and that's like, that's as bad as it gets. As bad as it gets. So um, I just hope they get, they get it sorted over there. Um, and it's a, I think also more than anything, I think it's a lesson to um, to America and other countries who want to try and go and fix other people's problems. Um, I think you can only do that if you're going to commit to it in the long the long term. I think I remember when it happened, a lot of people saying the Taliban's just going to wait, and then when the resources run out and the funds run out, they're going to go back in. And, and I was like, oh, I was inexperienced at that stage, and I hadn't been through these wars, hadn't seen them, and now I see it. I said, wow, there's a lot of people that predicted this. So hopefully people just learn from that in the future and we don't just go invade countries and, well, in America, don't go stuff there. Uh, you know, if you're going to do the job, do the job wholeheartedly all the way. Mm. Yeah, Anyways, that was also- This is not a political... Um, <laughs> Political podcast, you know. Uh, I'm sure you don't want to talk about my my amateur view, political views. No, it's, it's all really interesting and really powerful. Cricket is a game that you can so easily fall in and out of love with. Like I've had personal experience of that. There's been so many I've had personal experience of that. Um, but you obviously had a break from it. There was loads of other things you were doing, and then now you're back involved with the game coaching what do you think was it that sort of led you to come back to the game and fall in love with it again and want to be in and around teams and in and around squads and all of that well, it, it's a it's a beautiful game isn't it um and, and i i had to stop myself from laughing when you said you know you fall in the game like love with the game i used to do that every week when i was a player <laughs> <laughs> 100 i loved it and the game evokes so much emotion. It's such an intelligent game. It's a beautiful game. It's um, 
it's a cruel game. Um, there's no game yeah. where so long, so if you fail, you get punished for the whole day. Uh, you lose a game of football, you know, you might have a bad kick or you know, game's over in 90 minutes, you know, or 80 minutes for a game of rugby or whatever it is. But cricket, I remember playing games where we knew halfway, well, three quarters of the way through day one that we'd lost the game. There's still three days left. It was like, holy shit, this is like slow water torture. So the game's cruel, but it draws us back because um, those times when we, when you win, they're the best feelings. And when you're successful, it's so rare, but when you're successful, it's, um, it's, it's special. I mean, the fact you have to invest so much time makes it um, so much more sweet. If I go onto a computer game, and it takes, you know, I can get to level five in half an hour. Probably can't actually because I'm terrible at computer games. But most normal people can get to level five after half an hour. So, yeah, you get a bit of reward. If I want to practice my one-handed diving catches to my right, I have to practice that for months, for months, months, years to get it right in the hope that maybe the 23rd game of the seventh season, I take it one. And then we get some weird rush from that long-term investment but the struggle the more the struggle the more the enjoyment and um you know if you go and do a degree for six years as a doctor my, my sister studied for 10 years to become a doctor and the reward that she got from that is just amazing you know it's like um but by the so cricket by the nature of it being a long game Anything you're achieving it is just feels so good. Mm. So, um, I left the game because I, I, I don't know, I don't think I fell out of love with it. I think I was scared of it. Um, in the you know, the emotions that evoked from me and my brother being to, playing together, it was just really, it was, I hid from the game for a while. Um, and I think I told myself I didn't like it, and I kind of blamed cricket for the loss of my brother. I think, well, I don't think it wasn't the loss of it, but it was. The association um, with cricket and my brother and everything was it was too strong. So um, I think now, you know, I'm back. I, I, I love the game. I just love the game. Mm. Uh, yeah. I, I coach the batsman up Queensland, but even tonight, like Nathan McQueenie, he's a, one of the Queensland players. He left, played for South Australia. He's just about to start his season with South Australia. He rang up. And just, we're just talking about batting for an hour on the phone. And I'm not getting paid for it. It's just um, I don't want to be paid for it. I just I just love the game and the the, the technicalities of it, the um, the, the difficultness. It's um, everything about it. It's such an intelligent man's game, and which makes it surprising that I like it so much. But um, <laughs> it's. Um, and I think that's what draws us back. Um, it's amazing. Someone said to me one time, you know, when I re- when I left and I left the game, I said, I don't want anything to do with it. They're like, you'll be back. Because I'm not. I was hurt and I didn't want to come back, but eventually the game did draw me back. So yeah. um, it does. It's just one of those games. Isn't it? It's very hard to, to not have it in your life and it's been such a big part of your life. Yeah, it's such an 
easy game to hate as well because it's so easy to find things about it that are shit like you obviously 90% of the time you're awful it's like one of the only things in life where you consistently turn up and you're awful at it but so like it's such a weird thing to love but it obviously will always have you coming back it's um I think someone someone's told me this stat they said the ultimate the test of a batsman to be successful to get a hundred so that's when you're successful you've got a hundred Don Bradman, the greatest person to ever do it, only scored 100 every fourth innings. So the other three times he failed, it was like, this dude, the most successful bloke ever to do it, is only successful one in four. It's yeah. like, and then what about us, the rest of us, like, play? <laughs> it's it's Don Bradman's one in four, mate. I'm like 20, <laughs> like, coming from some sort of, like, Headless chicken just like coming back for another go. Was like, oh, yeah, <laughs> for 19 more. I think the only other game that's like that, and I hate it, is is golf, yeah. where you can like have hack around. I mean, I don't think I've ever been around a golf course in under 100. I, um, I, I, don't, I just don't. I play probably 12 games in my life. But you hit one good shot on the 17th hole, and somehow or other, it, it can. Think, oh, I wonder it's going to draw me back to go and do it again. Yeah, it's almost quite sad how much joy you can get from hitting a nice shot of golf. It's all like a bit sad, really. Everything's sad. Everything's sad. About <laughs> golf. Golf, yeah. Oh my god! Yeah. yeah when, when you put it like that, you just think, why? Why does anyone ever turn up when when ninety oh, yeah. time you're failing? What's the point? It's like a weird addiction because that one time when it all comes off, it makes it all worth it, doesn't it? Right? It's like. There's 22 other suckers or 21 other fools here doing the same yeah. thing. I think today's going to be their day. And I'm sorry to tell you, it's probably not. Yeah. But you're probably going to go home and moan about how shit yeah. it was and yet you're going to turn it's, up again tomorrow. <laughs> it's, it is, it's, it's bizarre. It's, and I think it's – I've said to my kids, one of the lessons I've tried to give to my kids is the things when you struggle, the success is way better when you have to work really hard for something. Success always feels so much better. Definitely. Like when you just you get on a game and you know, like even I can go on like Candy Crush or something. I don't know what are the guys play. Probably get to level one after they start rewarding me straight away because they know that makes you feel good. But the long term gratification for that is, you know, I can't remember. I can't even remember one. I couldn't tell you a highlight from my gaming career. Not that I have one, but I don't, I don't like it. But it's, yeah. um, I couldn't tell you a highlight about it. Whereas with a cricket career, I can tell you some things I did in the under-15s and, you know, because you have to work so goddamn hard just to get any success. Definitely. In that Queensland ball side, you have Marnus Labashain, who everyone knows is one of the best players in the world. He's had one of the best starts to test cricket, but... Everyone also knows that he just absolutely loves cricket. Like, There's always footage of him going around on Twitter or on Instagram of him playing backyard cricket or playing with bats or something like that. So I'm kind of wondering, and obviously you'll be able to name a few other things as well, but does that love he has for the game and that obsession he has with the game, ultimately, is that a massive factor in him becoming one of the best players in the world, do you think? Um. Yes and no. Um, that's a really poor answer, but um, 
yes, in in the sense that I, I feel like with him, training isn't a chore. He just genuinely loves the game so much and he gets in, um, so much excitement out of just turning up and training. And I think the reason is is because his knowledge of batting is so high. He's, it's like someone if you played checkers every day and you make the game really simple, I think it would get boring to you. He's mm. such a high – his thinking on it is so high – and he's so complex. I think that's what keeps drawing him back to the game. I mean, I've learned things off him. I've been doing this. I've been involved in professional cricket for 34 years. Yeah. And I'm learning things. I've been around like 10. Um, you know, um, he's, yeah. um, his enthusiasm is remarkable. His eye for and, – and he talks to a lot of people. I mean, obviously, he's taken a lot of information from Steve Smith. He's taken a lot of information from Matthew Maynard and Tom Morgan. Uh, taken information from me, albeit only probably a little bit. So. Um, information from the other players at Queensland. He's just constantly speaking to people. Never, um, I don't think he gets bored of talking about it. And his quest for knowledge is insatiable. So, um, yeah, and I, I don't think there's any coincidence that the two best players in Australia are the guys who hit the most balls. I don't, I don't know, you know, and then the other guys who are kind of like Joe Burns and, um, and David Warner, they're probably the next hunt for So ultimately their people's um, love of the game just drives them to just hit more balls, which if you do that with good technique, it's going to make you a better player. Yeah. No, and that thing about Thirst for knowledge is really important as well. I was listening to Marcus Stoinis on a podcast and he was just saying like he started off his career, he'd be a bit tentative to ask people questions or let's say he went to a training camp and he'd see someone that he'd obviously used to watch on TV, like a really big name in Australian cricket. He'd be a bit afraid to go up and ask them something. But then he had this shift where he's now like, why wouldn't I just go up and speak to them and find out stuff from them? Like they are some of the best players to have played the game. Why wouldn't I just go ask? Uh, that's amazing, yeah, because... I look back on my career. I remember, um, I remember being out in the Oval one time. I think we were playing Australia. It was the second one-day international there of the series of three. I'd already played a few games in Pakistan, and Ian Botham was out there. Um, he was out there just whilst the bowlers were bowling through the middle, leading up to the game. I remember just he was offering me wasn't offering me he's offering the other people advice but I didn't even go and introduce myself to him I didn't I think maybe I just thought oh, you might know who I in both and like um, and I missed an opportunity and I look back it's like wow like, just stupidity really like so you give guys like that who have so much knowledge and um, just to let them go and not do it are these guys the best players these days they don't do that they. They go out of their way. They, they do things which are uncomfortable. Asking one of the great players for advice or any couple of the guys here at um, Queensland have bought bowling machines. They lug them down to their local nets and they they, they get their volume in there. But that takes yeah. a lot of effort. So, I mean, it's the same thing as like me. I was just too lazy to just simply ask one of the greatest people to ever do it. They're like yeah. something it was uncomfortable for me. So, um, yeah, so 
think people now to, to get to the top, you have to really. You're talking about little one percenters now. Yeah, no, I get you. It's weird, isn't it? Because if someone said to you, "Oh, do you want the secret to batting?" You'd probably say, "Yeah," but it's like the uncomfort of having to go and ask for it that prevents you from getting it. If you know what I mean? Yeah, and you, and you get what you deserve, don't you? Like Minus <laughs> deserves it. Minus gets everything he deserves because he he goes out of his way. He speaks to people. Like he comes and speaks to me. Like even now, he you know, he comes up and just talks to me. Difference when I first started talking to him, he come follow me and ask me stuff. Now he, he tells me that I've got to walk with him while he's getting his kid on. So you come over here or while I'm getting a drink, come with me because he wants to have the conversation, but he's got to get his stuff done. So, yeah, um, yeah he's um, a remarkable player. Yeah, I, he's, I, I don't think we've seen the best of him. I really don't. I don't think we have. This is scary yeah. thing. Mm, I, I'm actually scared of how many runs he'll score in that series out here against England. I mean, I... Um, after the the run, he he had that mad run where he came he went came back from England, and then he finished the county season really strongly. Yeah, and I think two players, not the county season, the um the Shield season that after the Ashes, mm. and then we had a really really long um, off season because Corona cut short the Shield season. Mm. And I remember I was throwing to him and I we got his really sporty neck at the AB field they're really green and I had a ball that was swinging and I had a uh, a dog stick which I was I'd just been throwing to Joe Burns and and some of the other players in in the shield side and I'd been getting them out pretty easily and he came in to bat and um he said okay um I'll bet you you can't get me out I was pretty I would at that stage because I had a new ball, it was swinging, I'd seen how much. He said, you won't nick me off, you won't get, you nick me out um, in this session. If you do, I'll give you my car. I was like, I thought you got two because you're going to be walking home, boy. I ain't lifting you a lift. So like, I want to get this guy out easy. So um, I start throwing, I start throwing, and he's like leaving the ball while he's getting across the stumps. And then after about, 15 minutes, I was swinging them out, swinging them out. And then he just said to me, oh, just, as a, just to give you a bit of a clue, I haven't nicked one since November the 13th, Jackson Bird versus Tasmania at the Gabba. At this stage, this was oh like June. Day. So, he, so he, he hadn't nicked the ball since five months. the last time he'd nicked one. And I was like, in that moment, that's some of the, that's, that doesn't sound like sledging. All of a sudden now I'm holding the ball to go in, so I'm trying to go in-swingers in him instead of trying to go out and nick him off. So he's totally changed my tactic to try and get him out. And then I'd gone away from what I was doing well, and then all of a sudden he was he was batting well, and I didn't get him out. <laughs> well, yeah, it was a shit car anyway. He didn't want it. <laughs> it was. It was like those toots. <laughs> Just to wrap it up, um, Adam, yeah. it, it seems like you love challenges. You've, you've coached in Afghanistan. You've done uh, MMA, boxing. You've done business, hypnotherapy, psychology, and obviously a, a, an amazing international cricketing career as well. So many big challenges in there. What's next for yourself? Uh, I don't know. Um, I don't know. I haven't, you know, 
I've done a lot of stuff. Um, I feel like I've been I've been good at stuff. I haven't been amazing at anything. I don't think. Um, I want to find that thing that uh, that I really excel at. Um, I really want to find that. Uh, I just want to, to keep trying, and you know, and ultimately, I just want to keep. I just want to be a better person. Um, I know a lot of people say a lot of nice things about me, and I'm blessed in that. But I'm also ultimately flawed, so um, I've got a lot of improving to do as a person, and a lot of you know, growing up to do. I turned fifty last Sunday, but I still feel I've got a lot of. Um, stuff that I want to work on myself be a better person and a better dad and um and, and I think that's I haven't really necessarily focused on that I've focused on you know being a better cricketer better fighter better businessman what have you but I just really want to I just really want to try and be a better person and try and help people who are you know there's a lot of people out there doing it tough there's a lot of people who are really finding life hard and um Unfortunately or unfortunately, I've been through a lot of things, and if I can, um, anything I can pass on that can help people, then, then I'd like to think that might be my, my calling in life. I might actually be really good at that rather than just like. So, uh, so I don't know. It's, uh, um, that that that's probably it, and it probably sounds pretty lame compared to, you know, like I, you know, I don't want to say I want to be the next person to fly the. An astro, a, a, a rocket up into the space. Or I think my time's done with doing things which are high profile and that. So uh, maybe just just being a better person and helping people out. Yeah, I, I think that's really powerful. And I think even yeah. by doing things like this podcast and then sharing a story is definitely going to help people. So we're really appreciative of of you speaking to us. We've learned a lot, and I'm sure our listeners will as well. So thanks a lot, Adam. No worries, guys. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. Such a thoughtful guy and I really respect him to be honest. He's so open when he reflects on the different things that he's been through in life and he's definitely motivated me to do more of that in the future. I think as well he's just such an interesting guy, he's done such a unique mix of things. He said he's been England captain, professional boxer, MMA fighter, as coach in Afghanistan. Just such a unique mix of experiences and I think when you take that and match it with who he is and his personality it just makes for a really good hour and a really good episode. I feel so privileged to have spoken to Adam there. He really is a great guy and it has been such a roller coaster of a journey for him. He's achieved so much, had so many challenges, and he's learned a lot about himself along the way. Personally, I found his insights and perspective the most interesting, and it really echoes what Ed Jackson told us about how when you have a life-changing incident, every challenge you then take on afterwards seems far less significant. And Adam now approaches everything in life without fear, and I think that's a really positive mindset to have. I also couldn't help notice the symmetry with our conversation with Tony Underwood as well. Both athletes have played for England in their respective sports alongside their brothers and they both talk about the importance of competing in the garden with their brothers for their development and it just goes to show how formative those early years can be for an athlete. Thanks again to Adam for opening up about some incredibly difficult topics and teaching us so much about grief, gratitude and perspective. We hope you enjoyed the episode and if you did, please leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts and give us a follow on Instagram at GivingTheGameAway and Twitter at GTGA Media.